Amen. In the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter, there is a story, <coughs> excuse me, of Jesus healing a blind man that is well known amongst Bible readers because of the manner in which it happened, the, the way he chose to heal this blind man. Scripture says that Jesus spat on the ground, that he made little mud balls with the clay, that he put those mud balls in or on the blind man's eyes. The King James Bible says that he anointed his eyes and sent him to wash in a particular pool called Siloam. The man did exactly what Jesus told him to do, which is always a good policy. It's always a good idea to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. The man was healed and miraculously was able to see clearly. And if you know the story, you understand that this caused quite a disturbance because all of the people around him who had seen him blind and begging since he was a very young man, he'd been blind since birth, but had probably begged from a very young age, they were amazed and they asked how it was possible that he was able to see. The young man, or the man rather, that was, was blind but could now see, told them what Jesus did. He recounted his experience of of no doubt being a little confused as he heard Jesus spit and then felt something damp pressed into his eyeballs and uh, and now he could see and, and the people said where is this man that did this miracle and he didn't know where Jesus was and so they brought this man to the Pharisees to the religious rulers they presented to the Pharisees the previously blind man who is no longer blind the Pharisees asked what happened and again, he repeated the story. Pharisees' first concern was that Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath day, when nobody was supposed to work, and so Jesus had broken the rules. Secondly, because of their attitude or their mindset towards Jesus, they did not want to acknowledge that Jesus was anyone special, that he had any particular power, and least of all, that he was who he claimed to be. And so the next step in the process was the Pharisees called for the blind man's parents so they could verify that, yes, this was actually their son that had been born blind. And they came and they said, yes, this is our son. This is, this is our boy. This is our son. And, and yes, he was born blind. But they said, but for as for how he's now able to see, ask him. We don't know. He's a grown man, asked for himself. And the reason that they said that was they were afraid of the Pharisees. They didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus might have actually done a miracle because they were concerned about what the Pharisees would say. And so again, the Pharisees called this man to ask him more questions. And we pick up the story in John chapter 9 and verse 24, where it says, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. When Jesus touches you, when he changes your life, it doesn't matter how many explanations are sought, how many people try to explain things away, you cannot take away your experience with the Lord. And then said they to him again, verse 26, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already. And you did not hear, or we would say you weren't listening. 
Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. This previously blind man was understandably becoming impatient. He had to retell the story repeatedly, and it reached a point where he provoked the Pharisees by saying, I've already told you. Why are you asking me to tell you again? You weren't listening when I told you the first time. Do you also want to be his disciples? Do you guys want to be his disciples as well? And this made them very upset. And they were very quick to try to distance themselves from Jesus. They said, no, you're, you're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. And so from that passage, my title for this message and what will possibly be a few Sunday mornings is simply this question, will you be his disciple? Amen. Will you be his disciple? In the church world, particularly in evangelical Christianity in recent years, there has been a deliberate focus on what it means to be a disciple and to have churches that are disciple-making churches. You, there's, there's books about it, there's seminars, there's all sorts of material all focused around this idea of biblical discipleship. And a significant part of this thinking is a moving away from simply wanting to have converts, but rather to also produce disciples. And for some of us, that may seem as though it's just being fussy about terminology, but the two ideas are actually quite different, because when someone is a convert, it implies that they have a before and after experience, they've been converted. A simple example that is relevant to our lesson this morning is when someone goes from a position of not believing in God to believing in God. We describe them as having been converted. And that's a wonderful thing. To have our thinking challenged and then choose to believe in God is where everything begins if we're talking about faith. Because Hebrews 11 and 6 we know tells us that without faith it is impossible to please him, talking about God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. Amen. You can't go any further if you don't believe that God exists, but then you also must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so there must be a conversion in our minds. There must be a place where we confess that we believe in God. Ephesians 2 and 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is through the grace of God, but it is faith that has that belief, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So, we should never undervalue somebody's conversion experience. It's a powerful thing to have a conversion experience, and not everybody has a Damascus Road experience, like, the, like Saul of Tarsus did, who became the Apostle Paul. But if we're walking with God today, there was a point where we were converted. But what we have to be careful is when we think about conversion is that we do not accidentally or subconsciously slip into the mindset of someone's been converted now that's all that matters. They've had a conversion, that's the end of the story. When we, when we respond to the gospel message, when we're born of water and spirit, as the scripture the New Testament tells us, we must be born again. That is the best thing that can happen to you. When you are born again, you go from being lost to being found, from having no hope to having eternal hope, from sin to salvation, 
and from heading towards hell to becoming heaven bound. In fact, Scripture lets us know that heaven gets excited when sinners come home. But being a Christian, being converted, that whole experience is not like some sort of, well, to use a popular word at the moment, spiritual vaccination where you get your shots and you simply just carry on as you did before. But being born again is the beginning of a new life and a new way of living. And when we turn our back and our old life in repentance, what then is required is that we turn our new life towards Jesus, towards living the way that He wants us to live. And this is where becoming a disciple begins. Matthew 28, well-known passage for many of us, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, says that Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now, we're not teaching about baptism this morning, but we understand that, that instruction. In that instruction in verse 19, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is Jesus. But when you read verse 19 in the New King James Version, it reads just a little bit differently. It reads like this. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the Great Commission is designed to bring conversion to people's lives, but also to produce disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. In the simplest sense, the word disciple means a follower or a learner, which underlines the connection between teaching all nations and making disciples of all nations. Those two are interchangeable. And in what is possibly, I won't say this emphatically, but possibly the strongest passage in the New Testament about being disciples. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, starting in verse 25, it says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come unto me, and hate not his father and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily or but by chance, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is still yet a great way off, he sendeth an, an ambassador, an ambassador, and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So in this passage, Jesus makes some very strong statements that either 
include or exclude us from being his disciples. They include our commitment to follow him must be greater than our love for family and even for ourselves. The word hate is used, but it's used in a comparative sense, not literally. Jesus is not telling us you should hate your family, because if he was saying that, that would contradict scripture that he teaches in other places about how we should love our families. But it is a comparative statement that our desire to please him should cause us to be willing to forsake all others if need be. Secondly, he says, we must bear our cross. We must be willing to sacrifice our lives. Now, whether or not that's going to happen to us in the present day, I pray it doesn't. But it's worth noting that of the original 12 disciples, the first 12 that Jesus called, almost all of them literally gave their lives for the gospel. In fact, the only one that it seems that died of old age was the Apostle John, and that was only because he was miraculously preserved when they tried to kill him. At least that's what church tradition tells us. The next thing Jesus said was we must consider the cost and be willing to pay it. And then Jesus described discipleship that was basically all or nothing. Very strong passage, very strong language, but probably the most condensed passage about discipleship in one portion in the Scriptures. And this kind of language that Jesus used is confronting to some, possibly offensive to others. And it doesn't fit well in the narrative of a version of Christianity that promotes living your best and blessed life now. But rather it presents a message where there is a price to pay. And to choose to be his disciple is something to consider at length when we make that decision. Last Sunday morning we ministered about the frustration of an unchanged life. And this series of lessons is really a continuation of some of those thoughts and the areas that the Lord's been speaking to me about. But being disciples, helping others to become disciples, is what the church is called to do. Now this, this plays out in a lot of various ways. It's demonstrated through different means and mechanisms and things that we do as a church. But ultimately this is what the things that we do come back to. That we would be disciples and that we would help others to become disciples. Disciples, And so, as a church, and as individuals who make up the church, we need to stop and consider our discipleship. Consider what it means. We, we need to recognize and acknowledge that the direction that God has been giving us this year, and through the ministry of the Word in recent weeks and months, has had this kind of a focus upon it. And we need to realize that, that when God is emphasizing or repeating a particular theme or thread in the ministry, there's a reason for that. It's not because we've run out of subject matter and the Bible's run dry of sermons or messages or Bible classes, but rather there is a, a focus that God brings to our attention. And so while, while we were at Ministers and Leaders Retreat in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of excellent ministry took place there, but Pastor Jonathan Downs from Calvary Chapel in Canberra taught an excellent lesson around this subject of discipleship. And one of the things, one of the many things that I took away from his lesson was the need to be able to clarify in a simple, brief statement what it means to be a disciple, what that means for us. Because we can spend time 
discussing it, looking at scripture, and unpacking the various components, and, and hopefully in these lessons we're going to do some of that. But if we have something that is easy for us to focus on, it can help us, it can assist us in becoming what it is that Jesus wants us to be. Otherwise, if it's just a very broad, general concept around here that we, we talk about, but we're not really sure what to do with it or how to measure it, you know. Pastor Jonathan said that someone who is a disciple is doing three things. And from these lessons, this is what we want us to take home and remember as we move forward in the coming weeks. And Brother Downs said this is something they use locally, and, and he said we were welcome to use it as well, so I... I borrowed it from him. And he said, a disciple is someone who is following, serving, and growing. Following, serving, and growing. They are the three areas that biblically are indications of somebody who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, when we read the passage we just read in Luke chapter 14 about the things that are required of disciples... They can all be expressed and unpacked in these three areas, following, serving, and growing. And our ultimate purpose in life is to become what Jesus wants us to become. That is the ultimate purpose of humanity. That, that's also not a popular idea because we all, people have their own dreams, their own aspirations, their own plans, their own goals, and all those things have their place. But our ultimate reason for being created is to fulfill His purpose and His will. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, it says, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. So as we become perfect, or we would better understand that word to mean as we are completed, we become like our master. And the idea... Of, of disciples or followers is certainly not unique to Jesus and the Twelve. Usually when anybody uses the word disciple, it normally goes, at least in, in a Western world where there is a loose idea of Christianity, people think about the Twelve Apostles or the disciples of Jesus Christ. But the idea of, of, of being a disciple or having disciples is certainly not unique to the church or unique to Jewish culture. When you look at history, you'll find that in the, in the Jewish culture, as the first example, the Jews would have people that would call rabbis or teachers. And those rabbis would have young men, usually in their culture, who would attach themselves to that rabbi with his permission and literally follow them, learning from them as they went about their business, as they taught, as they did whatever they were doing. And so in a certain way, it was a form of schooling or education. And in much the same way that we have universities and colleges around the world today that some have great reputation. And those places, that there's, you know, there's esteem that is attached to them. Like if, if you go to one, you think of places like Oxford or Cambridge or some of the Ivy League schools in the USA, if you say, well, I went to school at such and such a place, that usually gives someone an impression of the quality of your education. And you may have spent the whole time playing cards and eating pizza. But if you went to that school, people think highly of the place that you studied, and it has that kind of reputation. In much the same way, rabbis had different reputations. People that were highly esteemed as rabbis, if you were able to say, I was rabbi so-and-so's student, that came with a certain amount of prestige. Just like the Apostle Paul spoke of being a student of Gamaliel, that was his rabbi, and he was a man held in high esteem. And in the ancient Greek world, 
there were similar practices where students or disciples would attach themselves to somebody and learn from that person and often replicate much of what they learned from their teacher, from their rabbi, from whoever it was that they were following. Some of the more famous examples include philosophers like Plato, who was a disciple or a student of Socrates, who were both famous philosophers in ancient Greece. And I think there's another one who's not in my notes that was then a disciple of Plato. Even in our own society, in the Western world, in the Western culture, when a tradesperson takes on an apprentice, to a certain extent, that apprentice becomes their disciple. Especially in a small working environment. If you work for a huge corporation, you may work for a lot of different tradespeople, but if you're in a smaller environment where it's very much a one-on-one relationship, you effectively become that person's disciple. They are teaching you their trade, they are teaching you their skill, they are passing on their understanding. And we see that in a lot of capacities across the world, in various trades and professions. This this goes together with, even in, in um, more academic-based professions, like, you know, if you say, well, you know, I, I was a law student and I, I, I trained or I interned at a particularly reputable firm, that carries some weight because you have been a disciple to a degree of that place. Biblical example is the relationship between the prophet Elijah and Elisha. When Elisha was called of God to become a prophet, he became a disciple of the older man, of Elijah. And if you think about those three things we listed, following, serving, and growing, Elisha spent quite a number of years doing those things. He followed the old prophet, he certainly served him, in fact his his resume described him as the one that poured water on the hands of Elijah. So he was very much his servant. And so we see this pattern throughout history. And so when we, when we look at it from a biblical perspective, we want to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so any influence that we have on the life of another person, anything they learn from us, needs to point them to our master. Jesus Christ. Anything they learn from us, we need to be pointing to the one that we are following. Paul made this idea very clear when he wrote to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the very beginning of his letter to this church, in, in chapter 1 and verse, starting verse 10, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me, somebody communicated a message to Paul, my brethren, that by them were of the house of Clovis, and he said, this is the people that told me, that there are contentions among you. And he said, now this I say, that every one of you saith, this is what I'm hearing, he said that I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, we don't understand that to be Peter, and I am Christ. So in this church, there were these little factions, and some were suggesting that, well, I'm a disciple of the Apostle Paul, or well, I'm a disciple of Apollos, because, well, if you like good preaching, Apollos was a fantastic preacher. Paul wasn't particularly eloquent, but Apollos was one of those silver tongues that could just command people's attention. Maybe others looked at Peter because, well, Peter was there at the beginning, so I'm a disciple of the Apostle Peter. Whatever their reasons were, Paul said, is Christ divided? 
He said, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul and Apollos and Peter were all the ministers of the gospel. And to a certain degree, the people who they led and taught were their disciples. In fact, Paul said later on in the same letter, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. So he wasn't saying that they shouldn't be following them, but the whole purpose was as they would follow him, that he would point them to Jesus. That was the whole purpose. He wanted them to understand that that was his purpose, that was Apollos' purpose, that was Peter's purpose, was to point them to Jesus, not to build their own group of followers. And we, we have to understand, and I'm just going off track a little bit this morning, we have to understand that we need each other. We need to be good examples to one another. We need to, we need to have leaders and elders that we can follow. God has set the church up that way, but ultimately that is only of any value if we are being connected to Jesus. Because it is not that person that saved their soul. It is not that person's words that are inspired by God, but it is the words of Jesus, the word the scripture that is inspired by the Lord. So we need to recognize that whatever influence we have, we need to be pointing people. To Jesus. Amen. Bless the Lord. John the Baptist understood clearly that this was his purpose. That that's what God had called him to do, was to prepare the way of the Lord. He was to bring a message that would prepare a nation and ultimately the world to be able to get to Jesus. And we see this unfold in John chapter 1. In the first chapter of that gospel, Jesus has come to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. If you read that later on, for the sake of time, you won't read the whole chapter. But John is quite confronted by the fact that the Lord's come to be baptized. And he kind of says, well, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus tells him to, you know, just let it happen, suffer it to be so. And there is a supernatural experience that takes place when Jesus is baptized that confirms to John that this man is the one that he was sent to prepare the way for. And you can, you can read that. But then something interesting happens almost immediately after that could be easily overlooked after the, the excitement of Jesus' baptism. And in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 37, it says, and this is right after the baptism, it says, again, the next day, John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John had men that had become his disciples that were learning from him, that were helping with whatever he was doing in his ministry. But when their master pointed out his master, they became the disciples of Jesus. John understood that that was his purpose. John wasn't trying to build his own kingdom. He knew that he came to prepare another kingdom, to prepare the way for another master, for another one that people should follow. And you, you don't read that John, you know, sent an angry text message saying, what kind of friends are you? You just, you know, betrayed me and gone off with this new guy. You know, how could you do that to me? You've hurt my feelings. I'll never trust you again. But John knew that it was his job to point to Jesus. And that when his disciples became Jesus' disciples, that he had achieved his purpose. Right. 
And for those of us that are born again, that are walking with God today, as we reach out to others, as we do our best to help and influence others that come to the Lord, we have achieved our purpose when we point them to our master. When as they follow us, for want of a better word, they, they follow him. Because if by following us they don't follow him, then we are creating our own little kingdom and we don't want that to happen. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we are here. That's why we are his disciples. Our role is to point others to the one that we follow. Our role is to point others to the one who sent us. That's the reason the church remains in the earth, is that others might come to know him. We want them to be converted. Absolutely. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be born again. They need to be baptized in Jesus' name to have their sins forgiven. They need to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues as the Spirit causes them to do so. That is a convert, that is a new birth that is leaving one life and beginning another. But when they do that, we then have a responsibility to help them to become disciples. So that we lead them and they can lead others. And so. For the next few weeks, we're going to consider and hopefully be challenged by what it means for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to be following, to be serving, and to be growing. And to think about those words, maybe maybe in your, your private devotions this week, as you spend time with the Lord before we come back together, take some time to read that passage in Luke 14. Let those challenging words speak to our hearts of how the Lord said If you're not willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. Amen. So we're going to pray this morning. We're going to bring the service to a close. I thank you for joining us today. Look forward to being able to see your faces in the building next Sunday morning, or at least Wednesday night, prepare if we can. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we were once lost, But now we've been found, that we have been born again, that we have begun a new life in you, Lord God, with the power of your word and your spirit, which is able to quicken us or to make us alive. But Lord, as we wait for your return, Lord, as we, Lord, have been faithful servants in your household, Lord, we want to be disciples, Lord. We want to, Lord, perhaps get a little more clarity as to what that means and how we can grow and change, Lord, and surrender ourselves to you that we might be able to, Lord, to give you glory in our own lives, but to point others to you, we pray. So, Lord, I pray what you of your people throughout this week. We, Lord, we ask you to bring us back together safely to your house to be able to enjoy the fellowship of being together in this place. We give you all the glory and all the honor today. In the name of Jesus. Amen.